If all of creation is the result of a random accidental expansion of the universe 13.8 billion years ago, as many believe it to be, then there is no inherent purpose for any of this if no one is actually responsible for what is here. If there is a God, however, someone who intentionally designed and created the universe and everything in it, well then, well then there is unquestionably an inherent purpose for all of this. Right? Without a creator, nothing has a purpose. With the creator, well, everything has a purpose. Now, you can, of course, try to assign purpose to things on your own without a creator, and certainly people do try to do that, but any purpose that you assign to anything or anyone, if there's no creator, well, that, of course, is subjective at best, which means that kind of purpose is based on nothing more than what you think or feel, which becomes a problem when someone else assigns a different purpose to that same thing or that same person that you do, right? Because then who's right? What is the true purpose for that thing or that person if there's no creator? And listen, who gets to decide? And if your answer is, well, everyone should get to decide for themselves what their purpose is, okay, well then what about the serial murderer? What about the thief? What about the cult leader? What about the anarchist? Right? All of a sudden, we're not so eager to let everyone decide for themselves what their purpose is, are we? So who gets to make that decision? Governments? Politicians? Philosophers? I don't know, religious leaders? The culture? Right? Individuals? Who gets to decide what your purpose is? If there's no creator, no designer, no divine source of all creation, then any purpose you assign to your life is nothing more than a subjective idea that you have about yourself. It's one of the reasons much of this world is in the shape that it's in, by the way. When human beings get to determine their own purpose for existing, all sorts of really bad things start to happen. Things like leaders of nations who decide their purpose is to exterminate entire people groups, and so genocide happens. Politicians decide their purpose is to determine what's best for other people, including their right to exterminate our own children. Men and women decide that their purpose is to be with someone else, so they abandon their families and cultures on the whole, purpose to define what is good and evil for their citizens based on nothing more than whatever happens to be in vogue at the time in regard to popular thinking about morality. You see, if there's no creator who determines the purpose of everything and everyone, then there is no objective standard to live by, which means whatever happens in this world is then left to whatever each person decides they think is right or wrong. And welcome to the world we live in. This is one of the reasons the biblical story of creation is so fundamental to our worldview, or more specifically to understanding our true purpose for being here. Because if there is a God who created everything, then inherently everything has a purpose. And listen, if everything has a purpose, that means you have a purpose. 
which by the way is not determined by any government or any politician or philosopher or religious leader or culture, ultimately not even by yourself. No, that purpose is determined by the God who created you. In fact, one of my very favorite verses in all of Scripture says, in your book were written every one of them, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Psalm 139, 16. In other words, there is not only a purpose for your life in general, there is actually a God-given purpose for every single day of your life, which was determined by God before you were ever born. I mean, let that sink in. Every day of your life has a God-given purpose. Every single day has a purpose that existed before you did. The question is, are you living for that purpose? Are you making every single day count? Is there purpose in your every decision, every conversation, every accomplishment? Listen, every place you go, every effort you make, every failure, every success, is there purpose in every single thing that you do? Do you consider the purpose behind every day of your life or are you simply just trying to get by and better yourself the best you can? Because look, if, if you don't believe there's a creator behind all of this, well, then look, I get it. I do. I understand. Without Christ, there would be no purpose to all of this. So why not live however I feel like living, right? Why not live for yourself? I get it. But if you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, then you have to recognize that there's a very specific reason that he continues to put breath in your lungs every day to keep your heart beating in your chest and blood pumping through your veins. And I can tell you this, it's not so that you can live for yourself. No, your God-given purpose is infinitely and eternally greater than living for yourself. And I'm just wondering, are you living for that purpose? Are you making every day count? Are you, are you taking for granted the days that have been given to you? Because each of us have, have been given a fixed amount of days on this earth, and none of us knows how many days that is, so why would we ever waste even one of them? Honestly, why would we squander the opportunities that He gives us every day to glorify Him by living for Him and for each other, by loving Him and loving each other, by serving Him and serving each other, by sharing Him with other people every chance we get? You see, God created every day of your life to fulfill a very specific purpose. Why would we waste even one of them? He never does. He never wastes anything. There's nothing random or accidental or purposeless or pointless about God's creation as we'll see in our time together today as we continue working our way through this creation story. So let's turn to Genesis 1 as God demonstrates his purpose in everything that he does and see if that same kind of purpose is reflected in everything that we do as well. Genesis 1, we'll begin with the first two verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So over the past two weeks, of course, we covered these verses in detail, so we won't go through all that again today, other than 
to remind you that at this point in the creation story, there was still no form to what had been created thus far. There was just this massive watery mix of formless matter with the Spirit of God hovering over all of it in the darkness. And so there are all these ingredients before him now, if you will, that he's created. Everything needed to begin shaping and forming and fashioning the rest of his masterpiece. And there he is hovering over all of it. What a picture. And then we see him in the rest of the chapter like a master sculptor beginning to craft all of this vastly beautiful and fiercely powerful creation. We, we see him bring order and structure and form and most importantly purpose out of this formless, orderless mass of newly created matter. And right from the start of verse 3, we see leading into every consequent verse for the rest of chapter 1, the conjunction and. So, so the word and leads us into every consecutive verse for the remainder of chapter one. Why is that significant? Well, because it shows us that each statement about the creation, each verse, each step of the creative process is sequential and chronologically connected to the verses before and after it. In other words, this wasn't some kind of disorganized free-for-all where things were just sort of popping out here and there randomly and by accident. No, this was God in a very structured, sequential, purposeful way creating that which did not previously exist. Let's keep reading verses 3 through 5. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening and there was morning the first day. So out of the darkness which he had already created, God spoke the light into existence. And again, at this point, everything's still mixed together in a formless mass. But here in verse 4, we see him begin to call his creation into order. And God separated the light from the darkness. He wouldn't have had to separate them if they weren't all mixed in with everything else. So God is calling things into a structure, into an order, as we see the result in verse 5. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So the light that God spoke into existence and separated from the darkness had a very specific purpose. To separate the day from the night and ultimately to order the cycle of time into days. And notice that not only did the light have a purpose, but verse 4 says that the light was good, which is a pattern that we see throughout the creation story because everything that God creates not only has a purpose, but his purposes are always good. The Apostle Paul wrote that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called uh, for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8 28. So he doesn't just say uh, good things work together for good. Paul doesn't say pleasant things work together for good or the things we really want work together for good. No, he says all things work together for good, which means even the bad things in our lives, the unpleasant things in our lives, listen, the things that we really don't want in our lives, even all of those things work together for our good. Why? Because God's purpose for you is always good. He didn't just create the light. He also created the darkness and he uses them both to accomplish his purposes in this world just like he uses the good and the bad to accomplish his purposes in our lives. Remember Isaiah 45, 7 from last week where God says, I form the light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Even God's judgment 
on his people, which of course we see throughout the Old Testament as terrifying as that was at times. Even his judgment was always rooted in the purpose of bringing his people back into a right relationship with him. His purposes for us are always good, which means living your life according to the purpose that he created you for is always, always, always what is best for you and the other people that he's placed in your life. You know that, right? Even, even when that means going through hard times. He always purposes it for your good. So why don't we always live for his purposes then in our lives? Well, in part, it's because we've confused suffering and struggle and hardship as always being the work of the enemy and therefore always something we should avoid or run from. Now listen, our enemy is very real. And he's at work in this world to try and bring suffering and struggle and hardship into people's lives. But you understand, he has absolutely no authority over the people of God on his own. You know that, right? In fact, the Bible, listen, in all of the Bible, do you know how many times Satan actually speaks? In all of Scripture, three times. Three times he speaks to Eve in the garden. He speaks to God about Job and he speaks to Jesus when tempting him in the wilderness. Well, why doesn't he say more? Because God doesn't allow him to. Our enemy cannot do anything that God forbids him to do. And yet we blame him for nearly everything that is difficult in our lives. James, the brother of Jesus, said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Say that again, James. What? Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James 1, 2 through 4. Okay, maybe James is a little off his rocker. The Apostle Paul, what did he say? We rejoice in our sufferings. What? We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who's been given to us, Romans 5, 3 through 5. Notice how he connects the concept of love and suffering together. Let's try Peter. What did he have to say? Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Come on, guys. You're killing me. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Suffering and glory tied together. 1 Peter 4.13. What is common about the suffering mentioned in all of these passages? Every single time it leads to something good. Because even in suffering, God's purposes are accomplished in our lives. That's why those early Christians were able to actually embrace suffering because they knew that God was using it to accomplish his good purposes for them. So they didn't run from it. No, they didn't go looking for it either. But when it came, they embraced it and allowed it to produce God's good purposes in their lives. Listen, God will allow strife and struggle and conflict in your marriage to arise. Why? To make your marriage stronger. Not so you can run away from it and try to find someone that you think is better. Right? God will allow you to go without 
at times in your life. Why? To make you a better steward of what he's given you. Listen, God will allow you to experience loss in your life. Why would a good God do that? To help us learn to rely on him above all others. You see, often God will allow suffering in the areas of your life that are the weakest to make you stronger. The areas of your life where you lack confidence. Why? To build you up. And the areas of your life that seem hopeless to give you hope. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Which means every time you run away from suffering and struggle and hardship in your life, you may be circumventing God's purposes in your life, which also means you're missing out on God's best for your life. Because his purposes are always good, even when they come by way of things that are not so good. Learn to embrace it, and you will grow in ways that you never imagined. Let's keep reading, verses 6 through 8. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. So now we see a pattern for God's work uh, developing by separating the day from the night. He's created a formula for his work and consequently for our work as well. The day was the light time when God did his work. The darkness was the night time when God did no work. So again, even the darkness has a purpose. Nothing new was created at night as he follows that pattern throughout the creation process. And here in verses 6 through 8, he continues to bring a form to the formless and structure to this watery mass that he's already created. Interestingly, in verse 7, when it says God made the expanse and separated the waters, the word made in the Hebrew, the word asa, means to fashion. This is different from the word bara, which means to create, which we see in verse 1. So God created the materials, the ingredients for his work on this planet and in space and so on in verse 1. And now he's forming or fashioning the order and structure and purpose of things to support life-sustaining conditions out of that which he already created. The word expanse in verse 6, which some translations have as firmament, is the Hebrew word rakia. It's literally translated as expanse or canopy. So when God says, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters, he's creating our atmosphere by separating the waters from the rest of the heavens. Again, verse 8, and God called the expanse heaven. The heavens here being the Hebrew word shamayim, which we talked about last, uh, last week, which includes what we refer to as space and the earth's atmosphere. And of course, our atmosphere is a protective canopy for the inhabitants of the earth, not as much as it once was, which we'll see. But God is now fashioning the conditions on earth out of what he's already created that will sustain physical life. Okay? Uh, can you see the great purpose in everything that he does? Not a moment of his working is wasted. Nothing is random or pointless. Furthermore, the waters above the expanse or above the firmament, according to scripture, constituted a vast blanket of water vapor in what we now refer to as the ionosphere, extending even further into space. And these waters could not have been, by the way, the clouds or water droplets that we have now that float around in our atmosphere because scripture says that they were above the expanse or above the firmament. 
our atmosphere at the time. So there was a canopy or vapor blanket, if you will, over the earth, and there were many uh, health benefits, safety benefits, in fact, to having that vapor blanket in place. Too many for us to discuss here, but I'm going to mention a couple. A vapor canopy would have been highly effective, first of all, in filtering out ultraviolet radiations, cosmic rays, other destructive energies from outer space, which are now well known, by the way, to be the source of uh, both somatic and genetic mutations. In other words, diseases and all kinds of physical maladies and sickness, which, of course, can have uh, a great negative effect on human and animal health and longevity. So the vapor canopy would have offered a lot of protection and would have also provided much higher atmospheric pressure than we have now. And listen, for a long time, those uh, who sought to debunk the scientific validity of Scripture would say that those conditions would have been too hard on human and animal life. But modern medical science has proven that hyperbaric pressures, increased atmospheric pressures, are extremely effective in combating disease and in promoting good general health. It's particularly compelling when you consider the ages of human beings in Scripture before the flood. Because higher atmospheric pressure and a lot of other benefits from that vapor canopy could scientifically account for people living much longer lives than they do now. Which, of course, begs the question, what happened to that canopy or vapor blanket? And the short answer is the great flood that occurs later in Genesis. The waters above the expanse or above the firmament that made up that canopy were condensed and precipitated in the flood in Noah's time which put an end to that canopy the way that it was. The waters above the expanse or above the firmament that made up that canopy uh, came down in the 40 days of rain during Noah's flood. So interestingly, right before the flood, God says in Genesis 6:3, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he's flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And then right after that, he brought about the flood that did away with the vapor canopy and consequently man's ability to live past 120 years. So although the Bible, uh, look, the Bible is by no means a science manual, and we don't pretend that it is, but there's certainly a lot in science that supports the claims of Scripture, and there's a lot in the Scriptures that support the claims of science, and more importantly, we see God's purpose here in everything that He does. Even in the great flood, as terrifying as it must have been, and as much destruction that it caused on the earth God is the one who brought the flood about and yet ultimately he used it for a good purpose in Noah's life and indeed for humanity after that by the way Psalm 148 shows us that the vapor canopy will be restored in the new earth that we will dwell in forever when God remakes the heavens and the earth so you have something to look forward to let's keep reading verses 9 and 10 And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So now we have dry land forming the earth and waters forming the seas. And so in verse 9 when it says, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. Well, the question comes up, what about the springs and rivers and lakes and creeks, right? How are they all in one place along with the oceans. Well, if you think about the tremendous chemical reactions that were underway as dissolved elements were combining with other elements to form the vast complex of minerals and rocks that make up solid earth and its crust and its mantle and its core, right? These were complex and at the same time 
cataclysmic movements happening as surfaces of solid earth were appearing above the waters, leaving an intricate network of channels and reservoirs opened in the crust of the earth to receive the waters that were retreating off of the rising continents. Henry Morris says, some of these reservoirs were opened directly to the waters descending from above, and yet others were formed as great subterranean chambers within the crust itself. All were interconnected by a complex network of tubes and waterways so that in essence they were all gathered into one place. So if you think about springs that come up out of the ground into lakes and rivers and creeks, those generally flow into the ocean. And those that don't, of course, yield some of their waters back to the earth, which replenishes the water table. So all of the earth's water systems are in general connected in one way or another. Of course, uh, science has a term for this. They call it the hydrologic cycle. The Bible has a term for it also. It's called all the waters being gathered into one place. Uh, let's continue, verses 11 through 13. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, there was evening, and there was morning the third day. So not only had rocks and minerals formed, but so had dirt, fertile soil with abundant nutrients for growing plant life. And notice that God says in verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation. And then verse 12 says, the earth brought forth vegetation. So God creates all of these elements of nature, and now he's organizing them. He's creating order and structure. And here in verses 11 and 12, we see that he's forming systems that actually support one another. The unique combinations of raw material that God created they're now working together to bring forth life. In other words, God creates life in order to reproduce and support other life. It's a characteristic of God that runs like a thread throughout all of our existence. Everything that he creates in us is not only meant for a good purpose in us, but it's also intended to be reproduced from us into other people as well so that they grow and reproduce in others in turn. Listen, it's a cycle. It's a spiritual cycle, actually, that is reflected in the physical world. Okay, God's purpose for you is not just for you. Everything that God has put in you, physically and spiritually, uh, listen, your, your giftings, your talents, your resources, your time, your energy, your passions, your desires, all of that is meant to be reproduced in others and to be used to support others to bring physical and spiritual life and health to other people. Okay, the purposes of God... And your life are so much bigger than just your life, which means we have a great responsibility, of course, to steward the gifts that he's given us, not just for our own sake, but for everyone else he places in our lives. When Jesus was praying to the Father concerning his followers, he prayed, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they've received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. John 17, 6 through 8. Can you see how the Father's purposes for Jesus were given to his followers by Jesus, who in turn were commanded to give what they had received to others? Jesus said to the Father, for I have given them the words 
that you gave me. Now, you look at Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Jesus says to his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then the Apostle Paul writes to the early church, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 15. And then he writes to Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Hey, Timothy, take everything I've given you and teach it to other faithful people. So you have Jesus receiving from the Father, the apostles receiving from Jesus, the early church receiving from the apostles and the command to the early church to teach others also. You're getting the picture. Whatever God gives you, you're supposed to give it away. The salvation that you have, the truth that he's given you in his word, your abilities, your talents, your resources, your time, all of that was given to you, not just for you. Those were all given to you so that you could reproduce life and health in other humans. A big part of your purpose in this life is to produce spiritual fruit for other people. Think about a tree, right? It receives sunlight and rain, nutrients from the soil, and on and on. Why? So that it can be healthy and grow. And when a tree is healthy and growing, what does it do? It produces fruit. But listen, the tree doesn't consume its own fruit. An apple tree doesn't consume its own apples, right? The fruit that the tree produces is not for the benefit of the tree that's producing it. The fruit it produces is for the benefit of others. Others who need that fruit to be healthy and to in turn grow so that they can produce fruit of their own. Okay, God's purposes for you are not just for you. Everything that you've been given to be healthy and growing has been given to you so that you can reproduce health and growth in other people. And so look, uh, listen, if there are people in your life today who are starving spiritually, it's generally because of one of two reasons. Either they are refusing to eat, which is on them, or there is nothing for them to eat, which is on you. So just remember, everything that God does in your life has a purpose. And that purpose is always for your good. And it's always for someone else as well. It's never just for your good. Share what you've been given with others and watch them grow along with you. Let's keep going. Verses 14 through 19. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. 
So now God is fashioning the sun and moon and stars from the rest of the universe with the sun and moon referred to as the greater and lesser lights. Most ancient pagan religions considered the sun and moon to be deities, uh, and they gave them formal names to identify them as such. But in the creation story of the Bible, they're not given formal names, only the greater and lesser lights, because, of course, they're merely aspects of God's creation, not God's in their own right. And then in verse 16, when it says that God made the two great lights, this is again the Hebrew word asah, which means fashioned or worked on them. In other words, the initial creating process was done for the time being. And so God is now focused on bringing order and structure and purpose to the earth and to the heavens. And so the sun and moon are now functioning to mark the day from the night and to measure seasons and years. And again, uh, he already created time and space, but here chronological time is being set into motion. And one of the complaints from scholars and some scientists in regard to Genesis has been that the formation of the entire universe here is only briefly mentioned, like almost as an afterthought. In other words, why aren't we given more detail, more information, more description of the process of the creation of the rest of the entire universe, right? Well, the answer, at least in part, is that the focus of Genesis 1 is clearly on the earth as his creation, and then the focus of the rest of the Bible, in terms of what he's created, is on mankind as the crown, the very pinnacle of his creation, and the object of his great love and salvation. So look, the, the simple fact is the rest of the universe just isn't the point of the story. Right? His, his great love for you is. Let's keep reading, verses 20 through 23. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Uh, contrary to uh, evolutionary belief, the Bible does not say that animal life began as a fragile blob of slimy goo that got inconceivably lucky and morphed into a more slightly complex blob of slimy goo that uh, morphed into a more complex blob and on and on and on it goes until the seas were eventually teeming with complex life forms. Okay? And... and I'm really not trying to be sarcastic about this, maybe a little bit, but <laughs> listen, there are professing Christians who believe that God did create all of this, but that he did it through evolution. And I understand that, but I'm simply trying to point out that the strongest scientific evidence that we have available to us, which we talked about, the, the fossil record and the Bible, seem to agree quite clearly that there was a sudden and abrupt appearance of complex life forms all over the world, as described on the fifth and sixth days of the creation story in Genesis. Not a gradual evolution by natural selection over millions, billions of years. In fact, uh, molecular biologist Michael Denton, he's a self-described agnostic, he wrote this, although the tiniest bacterial cells are incredibly small, weighing less than 10 grams, 
Each is in effect a veritable micro-miniaturized factory containing thousands of exquisitely designed pieces of intricate molecular machinery made up altogether of 100,000 million atoms, far more complicated than any machinery built by man and absolutely without parallel in the non-living world. That is a quote from his book which is titled Evolution, A Theory in Crisis. Listen, Charles... Darwin himself confessed to suppose that the eye with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. Listen, if you do not agree with biblical creation, I understand that. But please don't think that it's only simple-minded preachers or Bible-believing Christians who have a hard time accepting the assumptions of the theory of evolution because the fact is some of the most brilliant, secular, scientific minds that have ever lived have a hard time accepting it as well. Back to the Hebrew, the word created, verse 21, the word bara. We see that in verse 1. It means that God went from creating in verse 1 to fashioning or forming many things again out of his creation over the past 16 verses or so. And now he's back to creating. So he's now decisively and abruptly creating new creatures to fill the earth. And the word creatures in verse 20 in the Hebrew nefesh means living being. It's the first time that this word appears in scripture. And noteworthy here is the fact that God not only declared that his work was good at this point, but he also pronounces a blessing over the animals that he created. And so, although animals are certainly not the objects of God's love, uh, at least not in the same way that mankind is, they're most definitely objects of his care and concern that also serve a great purpose on this earth and of course in our lives, as we'll see even more in the next sermon. Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them fall to the ground apart from your father. Matthew 10, 29. He also said, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Matthew 6, 26. Job said of God that in his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Job 12, 10. The fact is God is intimately involved and interested and has a great purpose for all of the life that he creates. Because nothing he creates is random or pointless with him, right? It means we should never view anything that God creates with disdain or as serving no purpose. All of his creation is good and it all serves a purpose, which leads to our final point today. Let's read verses 24 and 25. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So again, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And then we see that phrase over and over again here as he categorizes their different kinds. He's not talking about the kind that they will eventually evolve into, by the way. He's not talking about the transitional kinds that they will become as they're evolving. No, it says they were brought forth according to their kinds. 
They're uniquely individual kinds because according to scripture, if you read it at face value, we didn't slowly all descend from a common, mindless, thoughtless, purposeless, simple life form. No, humankind is one of a kind. We're the pinnacle of God's creation, not descended from, but separate and unique from the rest of creation, which means God's purpose for you is one of a kind. Okay, all throughout this creation story, we've been talking about how certain things were created, bara, and how other things were made or fashioned by God, asa, from the materials that he already created. So we know that the basic elements were created by God, right? He called into existence that which did not previously exist, and then uh, the earth coming forth and the waters being gathered together and the sun and moon were all fashioned by God from what had already been created. So he used what was already there to fashion something even better out of those basic elements that he created. Now, if you're going to try and make the case uh, for evolution being supported in Scripture, which some people, of course, do, you could say that God caused the Big Bang the expansion of the universe 13.8 billion years ago, which in turn created in that process the basic elements needed to support life. And then everything after that was fashioned or evolved from those basic elements, which sounds like a reasonable argument until you get to the fifth day, where the ancient Hebrew clearly states that animal life was not fashioned out of other animals that already existed. No, it was a uniquely new Creation, which again is what we see in the fossil record, the sudden appearance of animal kinds. And then as we read about the sixth day of creation, which we'll do next time, we find that mankind, Adam and Eve, were bara, also a uniquely new creation. They were not fashioned or evolved from other animals that were created before. Now, chapter 2, verse 7 says that Adam was a man of dust being shaped or formed by God from the ground. And if you read it here in the Hebrew, it's the description of a potter working with clay. In fact, the word formed in that verse, yatsar, in the Hebrew, among other things, means purpose. It's the imagery of God shaping a lifeless being created and then crafting his parts together with purpose and then later in the same verse it says that he became a living creature when God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life suddenly not over billions of years as he descended from other animals suddenly and uniquely among all the rest of creation mankind one of a kind was created and crafted by God in his image and here's where it gets really interesting because if you skip ahead all the way to Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, which describe the process of all of us being brought into this world. In verse 15, after conception, the word asa, fashioned, is used to describe the process that occurs in the womb. He says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made, asa, in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. It's a picture of a baby growing inside the womb. And more to the point, God's sovereignty over that process as he fashions us out of all of our parts like a potter shaping his clay. But listen, if you back up two verses which explains how all of that parts that we are fashioned from got there, he says, you were formed, uh, you formed my inward parts. The word formed is the Hebrew word kana, which means created, not fashioned, not evolved over time, 
created by God. And then if you keep reading, he says, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And that phrase wonderfully made is the Hebrew word pala, which means to be marvelous, wonderful, surpassing, extraordinary, separate by distinguishing action. In other words, unlike the rest of all of creation, you are one of a kind. Do you understand what that means? Every single one of you is uniquely created. You're not descended or fashioned from other animals that already existed, but you are separate from the rest of all creation. You are uniquely made. You, according to Scripture, you are marvelous. You are wonderful. You are surpassing. You are extraordinary. No matter how many people live on this planet, you are, in fact, one of a kind which means you have a purpose unlike any other. The days that were formed for you when as yet there was none of them, those are different than the days that were formed for everyone else. No two people on this planet were created or purposed to live the exact same life. Every one of us has been wonderfully created for a one-of-a-kind purpose, which brings us, of course, back to our question for today. Is your life fulfilling that one-of-a-kind purpose? We're going to talk about this much more in depth next time, more about what living purposefully actually looks like. But for today, just ask yourself this question. Is my life fulfilling the purpose that I was created for? Am I making every single day count? Is there purpose in every decision that I make, every conversation that I have, every accomplishment that I achieve, every place that I go, every effort that I make, every failure, every success I experience? Is there a purpose in everything that I'm doing that is bigger than just me? Or am I actually just believing in Jesus while I'm living for myself? Because I can tell you, that God doesn't continue to put breath in your lungs every day and keep your heart beating in your chest every moment and blood pumping through your veins just so you can live for yourself. No, you have a good purpose. You have a one-of-a-kind purpose, and it's not just for you. You were created to give yourself away in a one-of-a-kind way that is not only unique to you, but is desperately needed by the other people around you that he's put in your life. And so the question remains, are you fulfilling that purpose in your life? And if not, why waste one more day? Let's pray.